Coming up on Stu Does America, Garrett Graff, author of The Only Plane in the Sky, stops by to talk about his comprehensive oral history of 9-11 on this 19th anniversary. And I hold FaithWire.com's Dan Andros accountable for his bold claims of giving up on the NFL. We'll finally see how that all turned out. Thanks to you, uh, all you two YouTubers out there for watching this stupid, stupid show, subscribing to it and liking all of our videos, and most importantly, dinging that little bell icon. It gives you notifications every time we post new content, which means you can go there and like it. I mean, it's a solid, circuitous sort of system. Keep cranking on the podcast, too. Uh, be sure to review us and rate us five stars, which is the appropriate number of stars. Thanks for listening. And finally, make sure to support our network with a subscription to Blaze TV. Just head to blazetv.com slash stew and be sure to use the promo code stew because that's how they know you like this stupid show. And you'll save 10 bucks. If there's one thing that really stands out to me today, it really is uh, horribly, uh, horribly true that we're treating our police officers much differently than we were back in 2001. Let's do the vilification of our heroes. Stu does America. It's been 19 years since 2001. In some ways, not a lot has changed. When the uh, second plane hit on September 11th of that year, I was talking to Glenn Beck about the news. This morning, 19 years later, I was talking to Glenn Beck about the news. But I want to focus for a second on things that have changed. First of all, it seems completely impossible for us to unite as a country like we did after 9-11. And we always you know, say things like this. We wax poetic about the time when we all came together after this terrible tragedy. But it's not exactly easy to measure what that means. Let me try to illustrate this in the most blunt political way possible. On September 22nd, 2001, Gallup did a poll and found that 84% approved of George W. Bush. That's 84% of Democrats. 84% of Democrats approved of the job performance of a Republican president. Does that even seem remotely possible today? Donald Trump could create a coronavirus vaccine himself out of Diet Mountain Dew that coincidentally also cured cancer, and he'd still have double cracking, uh, trouble having double digits with Democrats, let alone 84%. And we remember that feeling of unity fading away really quickly. But we forget George W. Bush had an approval rating of over 50 percent of Democrats for an entire year after the attacks, which seems bizarre. I mean, it doesn't seem like another country. It seems like another planet. Back in 2001, we remember everyone suddenly going to church again, people praying together out in the streets. Now a tragedy hits and we hear the constant refrain of hopes and prayers aren't enough. Back in 2001, there was one thing that seemed like it would never go away. Our feelings of respect for our first responders. Now, we want to, what, defund the police? Now we have ACAB in the profiles of half of our Twitter feed. Now we have the Democratic VP nominee actively soliciting donations to bail out criminals who have attacked the police. What on earth is going on? Every year we play a piece that was put together for the radio show back uh, for the one year anniversary of 9-11. It takes you through the kind of the feeling of that day. And, you know, you even hear a much younger and thinner Glenn Beck before television, before national radio, talking about the events of the day. Take a minute and bring yourself back to that place, to a time when it was foreign terrorists targeting our first responders and not our own citizens. 
52. Something weird is going on. Yeah. We, the World Trade Center is on fire. Oh my Seriously, goodness. the top it, of the building. We're trying to get information. Top level of one of the... ...is to unfold from New York City. A plane crash crashed. <gasps> Just... My sister's in that building. Okay. And I hope she's okay. And I gotta run to New York. Oh my God, it's complete pandemonium. First of all, calm down. There's raining papers and ashes and...
is Tuesday, September 11th, 2001. This is Glenn Beck. Dateline, New York. In one of the most audacious attacks ever, terrorists hijacked two airliners, crashed them into the World Trade Center in a coordinated series of blows today that brought down the twin 110-story towers. Thousands may be dead, 58,000 people work at the World Trade Center. One plane, United Flight 93, crashed north of Somerset County Airport, a small airport 80 miles southeast of Pittsburgh. United said that flight, Boeing 757, left Newark at 8.01, and entry San Francisco at 38 minutes. And we will not fail. The American Constitution. That is the news of this day. September 11th, 2001. I'm joined now by Garrett Graff. He's the author of The Only Plane in the Sky, an oral history of 9-11. Garrett, thanks for coming on the program. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. I'll say, as someone who, you know, 9-11 is a defining moment in my life, as it is for a lot of people, yours is the one book I think you have to have in your library about this particular event. It is, you know, you really, it's really in-depth, and it's the real re- ways that people who are there remember it. Can you kind of walk people through how you structured the book and why you did it that way? Yeah, so this is 9-11 as an oral history. That is, it told through the voices of 480 Americans as they lived and experienced that day. And I told the book through their own voices uh, because I think, you know, we're 19 years after the, the, the September 11th attacks now. And what we're seeing is that this event is slipping from memory into history. Uh, you know, you, you have American servicemen and women being deployed now to Iraq and Afghanistan who to fight in wars that are actually older than they are. And the stories that we tell in history books about 9-11, it's neater and simpler and cleaner than this day that any of us actually lived. I mean, as you remember that day, it, it, we tell this story about the attacks began at 8.46 in the morning. There were four planes, Shanksville, Pentagon, Twin Towers. The whole thing was over at 10.29, 102 minutes later. 
And that's not the day that any of us actually lived. You know, what we remember about that day is the chaos, the fear, the confusion, the trauma, the sense that we didn't know when the attacks began and the sense that we didn't know when the attacks were over. And it was this incredibly stressful day in part because we didn't know what came that afternoon. We didn't know what came on September 12th and we didn't know what might come in 2002. The challenge of the nation's response to 9-11 was that we were in many ways trying to drive the, uh, react to the emotion of 9-11, not the facts of 9-11. And so this book really tries to tell that story in the way that we experienced it, complete with the emotions. It really is an incredible read, and uh, it's something I would highly recommend people picking up. Um, one of the stories you, you went through, it, it was the guy who, it was his first day on the job, and he's running basically the response of air traffic control for the nation. When I started reading that, I couldn't believe it was true. It seems like it was made up, but you have all the details. Can you walk people through that story a little bit? Yeah, and this is one of the examples of... Uh, you know, you have all of this stuff that unfolded that day on 9-11 that on any other day in modern American history would be among the most dramatic things ever to have happened in modern American history. And yet that day was maybe not even the 10 or 12 most interesting things that happened that day. And, and so I'm so happy you mentioned the air traffic control story because that's one of my favorites. Ben Sliney, national operations manager for the FAA in Herndon, Virginia. He was literally on his first day on the job on 9-11 as the head of the nation's airspace. And in his first 90 minutes on the job that morning gives two orders that no American has ever given before or since. Uh, about uh, shortly after 9 a.m., he institutes the nationwide ground stop. Uh, any plane that has not taken off into the air is not going to be allowed to go uh, for takeoff. And then after the Pentagon crash at 937, he issues an order, land everything, land everything now. And mm -hmm. that what he, what he effectively says is there are 4,500 planes in the air at that moment at 942, Tuesday, September the 11th. And every single plane is going to be forced down at the closest available airport, regardless of destination and regardless of whether the airport is in any way actually prepared for those incoming planes. Jeez. And so we know just sort of the tail end of this story, uh, which is the 38 planes that are grounded in Gander, Newfoundland, the transatlantic flights coming across uh, from Europe, that deposits 7,000 passengers in a matter of hours into a town of 9,000 people on an island uh, where they are then stuck through Saturday of that week from Tuesday to Saturday. Wow. And it's this incredible drama that plays out that day that most of us never see. And then it leads to one of the most enduring memories of that day which is the quiet that befells the nation on the afternoon of September the 11th. I mean, you probably remember that going out on the afternoon of September 11th and just hearing this utter quiet because all of the planes had been grounded. Mm. I, you know, it's, it's interesting because we went through, it's just a fascinating story and there's so many like it in the book. 
Um, I just remember going through the past 18 years and through all that time, 9-11 became more and more of a distant memory, but it always seemed like the biggest thing that ever happened in my life. You know, I mean, it really was. And I remember doing this show, this stupid little show that I do in, in early March. And one day just realizing, like, we have hit something that's bigger. Like we this yeah. we are now in the middle of a story. And that was the only thing that made me pause as I was talking about it. This is the craziest thing that's ever happened in my life. And it made me pause. Well, 9-11 was pretty big. The fact that that has been surpassed in so many different ways uh, is, is remarkable. And I think it's a really different experience for the nation. Uh, you talk about this, you wrote about this in The Atlantic, um, and, and you made some really interesting observations about the differences and the way we're reacting to them. Can you go through that? Yeah, you know, it's a, it's a great observation, which is this is, you know, on this 19th anniversary, we now see ourselves experiencing uh, another sort of, we hope, once in a century trauma. And that what we are feeling this year is something that is uh, much less uh, uniting than what the nation went through mm -hmm. after 9-11. And that, in fact, part of the challenge of this year has been that this is, has divided the nation sort of month by month in new and different ways that it have really led the nation to splinter rather than to unite. And I think that there are a number of different reasons for that, only one of which is actually politics. I mean, there's also the purely physical difference in this, which is part of what united us after 9-11 was the ability to hug one another, to grieve together in candlelight vigils and funerals and memorial services. And this, this year now, all of us are isolated, literally prohibited from touching loved ones and friends. Yeah, it, it's it's strange, and it's not the way we're used to going through something like this. You mentioned too the media coverage of it, and that it's a I think you called it a different sensory experience. I thought that was a really interesting way of describing it because it is a totally different tragedy, right? Like it's we re, you know I remember going through debates about whether this footage should be shown from nine eleven. It was it would it would give you so much emotion just watching it. I can still go you know, watching it today. I still go back to that moment. It's totally different. I mean, we're watching graphs now, basically, uh, when we watch yeah. the news. It, it is, is, is that part of the difference where maybe we're not uniting because we don't all internalize it the same way? We don't all internalize it the same way, and we don't all have a shared experience in this pandemic in the same way. Mm -hmm. You know, any of us who watched 9-11 unfold on TV uh, had basically the same experience. You know, in, in some ways, the average school child watching uh, TV at home had roughly the same experience on 9-11 as President Bush in terms of the confusion, in terms of the knowledge, uh, in terms of the wonder and the visuals that were available that day. Um, but of course, today, we have very few visuals of this pandemic. You know, you can't actually show the hospital wards full of patients. Um, we're having very different economic reactions around the country um, as some Americans find themselves sort of busier and working harder than ever. And tens of millions of others find themselves totally out of work. Um, you know, there is no sense that we are all having the same pandemic in the way that we all had the same 9-11. Um, I want to I get your thought here. We've got about two minutes left on 
what would have what would happen if 9-11 were to happen today? Because COVID is completely a different situation. But we've changed in so many other ways with media and division. I mean, I mentioned earlier on the show that Democrats approved of George W. Bush at an 84 percent clip. Democrats after 9-11. I mean, obviously, I don't think that's even remotely close to possible, no matter what happened now. I feel like looking at the way social media reacts and everything, we would have been down this Alex Jones territory 10 minutes after 9-11 happened if this were to happen today. What do you think the differences would be? Well, you actually hit uh, in that in what I think is going to be would be the biggest difference is the way that the technology would unfold, that part of what we forget about 9-11 is how primitive the technology really was. I mean, you, you didn't really have Blackberries. Cell phones were more the exception than the rule. And that this, you know, in, you know, just to give a couple of examples, you know, we would have video from the hijacked planes. We would have mm-hmm. video from the people aboard, uh, the people above the crash zone uh, in the two twin towers. I mean, we would have an ability to actually see the horrifying visuals and the experiences of these uh, people who were trapped amid this disaster in a way that is literally unimaginable to us uh, today. Mm, yeah, I mean, think about that. It's only 19 years ago, and we only have one video of the first plane going into that building in the middle of New York City. I mean, there'd be yep. thousands of them if it were today. I can't recommend this book enough, and also his articles for The Atlantic on the, kind of the perspective of what we're seeing today. Garrett Graff, the book is The Only Plane in the Sky, an Oral History of 9-11, uh, a must-own, in my opinion. Garrett, thanks so much for coming on the program. Thanks for having me. All right, we'll be back in a second. For reasons that are totally unknown and surely not sinister, the mainstream media is slowly getting bored with calling everyone, well, you know. Everything is racist. Every thought you have is a KKK dream. Everything is racist. White supremacist extreme. (laughs) Instead, they've returned their attention to COVID-19, which of the viruses is the most racist. Specifically, they've zeroed in on Trump's recent optimism about a vaccine. Trump wants one. So now our friends on the left have begun to question their stance on vaccines. Was polio really that bad? Was it worse than racism? We may never know. In an interview with CNN this week, VP candidate Kamala Harris had this to say. So let's just say there is a vaccine that is approved and even distributed before the election. Would you get it? Well, I think that's going to be an issue for all of us. Um, I will say that I would not trust Donald Trump. (laughs) Now, Trump's response was as Trumpian as you'd expect. Uh, Biden and his very liberal running mate, the most liberal person in Congress, by the way, is not a competent person, in my opinion, would destroy this country and would destroy this economy should immediately apologize for the reckless anti-vaccine rhetoric. (laughs) This is going to be a fun one. We got six weeks ahead of us. It's going to be really fun. The Washington Examiner wrote a great editorial about Harris's response, correctly labeling it uh, irresponsible and frankly stupid. Because just like that, Kamala Harris is just like anti-vaccine out of nowhere. 
Trump nicknames kind of stick. I don't know if you've noticed that. They're sort of like the blue dye that bank tellers sneak into the giant burlap loot bags of unsuspecting bank robbers. Once that stuff gets on you, it takes forever to get off. Believe me, I've been there. Hopefully he comes up with one for Joy Behar as well, who expressed a similar sentiment. He will push anything to get reelected. Don't fall for it. And by the way, I will take the vaccine after Ivanka takes it. (laughs) Okay. That was as well received as any Joy Behar line has ever been. This whole issue here is ridiculous. Biden and Harris and Joy are really out of their league. They're like chinchillas facing off with a pit bull on human growth hormones. They're going to have to up their tactics if they want to survive against Donald Trump, the guy who in 2016 reduced 16 seasoned politicians and Ivy League educated lawyers to nicknames. A few of those guys are like ghosts now and then proceeded to win against the human Darth Vader known as Hillary Clinton, a woman so terrifyingly powerful that her husband, once the most powerful man on Earth, is happier at funerals than when he's with her. I will say this, this whole idea of the Democratic Party being this pro-science party has got to go out the window. No one can still believe that, can they? Think about what Kamala Harris did in that clip. She's the vice presidential candidate for one of the two parties. And take away what you think about vaccines, because I know some, if some people don't like them, whatever. It's, a very, it's not a very partisan thing, frankly. Uh, Jenny McCarthy, RFK Jr., they're big anti-vaccine people. They're way on the left. It, it, it's just one of those things. But take away your personal feelings about whether you'd get this vaccine or not. Think of the pro-science view. Dr. Anthony Fauci is working on a vaccine to try, uh, you know, all of the CDC is working on this vaccine. Dozens of, of the, the, the best scientists in the world are working on, on this vaccine. And if it gets approved and goes through all of those things, Kamala Harris says you shouldn't trust Donald Trump, who is not, by the way, mixing things in Trump Tower to come up with the vaccine himself. He's not actually doing the science. He's just making it easy for the science to be done. And he's doing a pretty incredible job on it, honestly. I mean, I think if we come up with a vaccine that actually works here, this is going to be incredible. I mean, it's going to be one of the biggest accomplishments he's had in his four years. That being said, what Kamala Harris is doing is risking the furthering of a pandemic to win votes, to knock a couple more notches off of Donald Trump's approval rating, to, to, to increase the doubt about this vaccine. There's already polls out there that about half of Democrats will not take this vaccine. Why? Because they don't trust Donald Trump. These aren't people that are naturally just don't like vaccines. These are people who would normally take vaccines, but they won't take them because of Donald Trump. She's willing to risk the lives of her own voters just to try to get their votes before they croak. This is sick. I mean, this is something that Kamala Harris should be asked about in every interview until this election. Will the media do anything? I have not heard one public health official come out and say that is really irresponsible. Maybe they are. I'm sure there's a few. but I haven't seen them yet. It is an embarrassment. Kamala Harris honestly should have to answer for this every single day until November 3rd. Do you wear uh, hate wearing dress shirts? I understand it. And they come sometimes they're scratchy and they're not really comfortable. Well, Buttercloth has changed all that. They designed a men's dress shirt that is actually nice and comfortable. It feels like you're wearing your favorite T-shirt. That can sound like an exagger- exaggeration. It's not. I've never felt material like the Buttercloth material. It's totally new. 
And, you know, they went on Shark Tank and they said, hey, feel this. And all the people on Shark Tank were like, uh, let me give you all of our money. Buttercloth has developed a ridiculously soft fabric using a special blend of 100% long fiber cotton and a, u- a unique manufacturing uh, process. This was when, uh, when Shark Tank uh, happened. Of course, obviously, this all blows up and everyone starts buying it. I think they invested like a quarter of a million dollars right off the bat. Um, Buttercloth is uh, offering our listeners right now 20% off your first purchase. You're going to get this thing, you're going to feel it, and then you're going to buy more of them because the, the material is awesome. And I will say it's not just um, comfortable so you're like, oh, just, uh, you know, this is a really comfortable shirt, but it doesn't look really nice. It looks like a really, really nice dress shirt. It just feels totally different. It's much more comfortable. It's not stiff. It's really soft. and I mean, it's just fantastic. I can't rave about it enough. Uh, go to buttercloth.com slash stew. Receive 20% off your first full price order. The slash stew part is important, of course, of the address, because that's how they know you like this stupid show. Plus, that's your path to get the 20% off. Buttercloth.com slash stew. The name is the perfect description for this product. Buttercloth.com slash stew. Joining me now, Dan Andros, managing editor of faithwire.com. Also, the YouTube page. Got to make sure you check out and uh, I will say, fan of only woke sports teams, the, uh, the Boston Celtics, who are incredibly woke in their playoff run, as well as the <sighs> Washington football team. Dan, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you very much for bringing up uh, my painful past. <laughs> uh, let me start here. Last night, there was an NFL football game on. I watched yeah. it. Did you watch it? Absolutely not. <laughs> Well, I don't I think I've ever seen you stick with anything before. This is amazing. Well, yeah. I mean, look, I, I've told you before, I'm suffering through basketball and, you know, the Celtics, who I love, and basketball is my sport. And the Celtics are good. They have a game seven happening now. And um, so I am into it. But it's like they're trying so hard to make me not watch it. <laughs> uh, I, I saw on my social media feed the Celtics had their logo with the, like, Marxist raised fists. And I'm just like, does anyone not else not realize what you're doing here, guys? <laughs> like, can is there anyone in professional sports marketing one of these teams that can come up with some messaging that is, you know, against racism but not every leftist-leaning propaganda, you know, theme that you can possibly come up with. Yeah, it's um, it's it's insufferable. So, uh, so I'm at my limit with basketball. I, I'm powering through that. If if the Celtics lose this game seven, I'm probably not going to watch much of that uh, after afterwards. But now I didn't watch football. Um, wasn't going to suffer through it. Yeah, it's. I think it's an interesting distinction there, in that like the Celtics are good, and you're staying with them. The Washington football team, which, by the way, will always be known on this program as the Washington Redskins. Uh, the Redskins are not going to necessarily, they don't have a, a bright outlook for this particular season, though they'll probably beat the Eagles this weekend. Um, uh, is, is that part of it? Because you see, yeah. I think the NBA no, watching, as a, as a guy who's watching both of these things, NBA and NFL, the NBA is much worse. They've been horrible. They've been horrible. It, I think it does make it easier for me to get out of there when my team got deleted. I mean, let's we got canceled. <laughs> you my did. Team does not exist. It doesn't exist anymore. I don't care if it's the same players. Uh, some of my friends are like, oh, the team's still there. I'm like, no, it's not. No, it is not. That is not. The Washington Redskins do not exist uh, in my mind. 
So I'm just, I have no interest. I have no interest in watching what the Washington football team does. Yeah, no, I, it's honestly understandable. The NFL ratings were down 16%, um, which, you know, it was sort of a blowout game. There's some other reasons for it. But part, part of that decline to me, absolutely, is just people getting sick of this. They don't, like, I understand, you know, and they were much more subtle about it, I thought, on the NFL than they were on the NBA, where it's painted in the middle of the court during every single game. You know, here it was in yeah. the end zones, but you don't see the end zones for 90% of the game. It was right. more subtle, but still, it's I don't well, need to be lectured. No, I don't. Well, Stu, I, I think there's an, I, there's something interesting going on here um, because of this combination of the of the social justice stuff happening in the midst of the COVID uh, pandemic, right, where we have all these shutdowns and gatherings aren't around. I think, this is my theory, I know we can shoot it down, I'm just kind of spitballing here, but I think that the COVID you know, nonsense that we're having to deal with, with lockdowns and everything else, no crowds sort of provided this accidental cover for SJWs to sneak in. I mean, they got booed last night by their own fans when they went out there and did a <laughs> unity display. They got booed. I mean, it's like they forget that that this is the same league, Stu, that when they knelt for the national anthem, people burned the merchandise of their own teams. Like that's that legitimately happened. People were pissed. Yep. And uh, I, I don't think I think because no one's actually out there that that they're like shuffling along forward with this social justice stuff. I think they're underestimating how pissed off people are at this yeah. stuff. They don't like it when, you know, yeah, radical progressives like kneeling for the anthem. But regular people who actually like this country, which is most of us hate that yeah it's it's insufferable and we don't like it at all yeah um and it's I, disrespectful for all the reasons you guys have probably broken down a million times I, and i think like you know i don't even look i do mind because i think the arguments are wrong but like if a player wants to take a knee during the anthem i don't i don't care i'd shrug it off right. whatever like if i ever have a chance to talk to that person i would try to convince them that they're wrong right like you right. shouldn't abandon this country over over what yeah, you think is this care. issue and you don't understand the issue in my opinion that being said it's the coverage. It's like they they have to zoom in on the guy who's kneeling every single time. <laughs> like the Chiefs, literally every player and every coach and every person on the staff was standing except for one guy. And that guy had the cameras on him the entire time. And that sort of stuff is so frustrating to me. Um, let me uh, hit you with this because since we're going through COVID theories here real quick, I, I kind of have one as well. The okay. ratings are down on, on, the, uh, on a lot of the sports broadcasts. And I do think it's partially because of the um, you know, the woke nature of this. I really do think we've hit a turning point where it, it's changed from the, the, the people who used to say they were going to boycott and, and would just keep watching. It's changed from that into this is a legitimate thing, I think, now. People are, are really frustrated because it's so over the top every single week, every yeah. single commercial break. Um, but I think COVID has played into this a little bit as well in that sports is a is a is a is a is a it's part of our routine. And the fact that it just disappeared for four months in a way like me and you who are big sports fans, it almost gave us an excuse to not care about it anymore. It wasn't part yeah. of our lives for four months. And because of that, you almost get out of the rhythm of doing it. And it's easy to sort of like let it go by the wayside. Do you think that's do yeah. you think anything to that? I think that's part of it. I mean, I go, I've gone through busy seasons of life where I just, you know, years yeah. ago when all, when all my kids were little, I just I really wasn't watching much of anything because I just didn't have any time. I couldn't turn on the TV for more than 10 minutes without absolute chaos breaking down at, at my house. <laughs> yeah. So 
So I think that's part of it, but I really do. And if you think about this, Stu, we were all craving for sports to come back. Yeah. And they have, they had literally a capped, I would love to know what the ratings for golf were because you have a captive audience who is begging for something live and real to actually be on TV as we're sitting here kind of cooped up and locked up. And you still can't dominate the ratings like something is severely wrong there. If I'm in the, you know, executive ranks of these sports leagues, I'm terrified at all this pandering going on and how it's going to impact the league long term. I mean, I yeah. think people just assume like, ah, the audience is always gonna, they're always going to be there. Whatever we do, they're going to be there. I, I wouldn't be so sure about that. You're always going to get some people, but. I mean, they could lose a huge market share if they keep doing this. To me, when you have a captive audience and you're still not dominating, that's a red flag. Yeah, and when you got $500 million salaries to pay, uh, it, it can be hard to run a league like that. And I, <laughs> yes. and, and I think, too, it's like, you know, it, I don't mean to say that the COVID is the reason people aren't coming back, but it made right. it easier. Like, it, we were such, you know, you get in a pattern where you're watching these things. The next season hits, you get, in, you get into it, you're watching it every week. When when COVID COVID, you know, interrupted that pattern. And once that pattern was interrupted, we were able to kind of like look at it and be like, you know what? I don't really know if I care enough to go back and watch these idiots lecture me about social justice. No. Yeah, absolutely. And especially when, like you said, you get in a new routine and, you know, I don't watch a whole lot of TV besides sports. Uh, when they're on, when they're not social justice thing in my face 24 um, seven. Um, so, but yeah, but when you go through six months or whatever, four months or whatever, whatever it was without, you know, sports and I, and for me, the rest of the TV is not on that much. It's like, I just don't even think to go back to it. I'm just going around my yeah. normal routine, you know, put the kids to bed, you know, we go doing school and work during the day. Um, we homeschool. So we're doing that here at home, by the way. Um, Who's nailing it here with the homeschooling decision? <laughs> I'm, I'm just saying. I'm just saying. This is infuriating. Dad, just saying. Yeah, yeah. You called it. You knew this pandemic was coming right around the corner, and you knew you'd be prepared right. for and it. And that, uh, you know, and that we would have all this, uh, you know, the, the the gender stuff and everything else would just reach a fevered pitch here at this point in time. All yeah. It all converged at once. You knew it. <laughs> You're like the guy who was standing on his head waiting for gravity to reverse itself. And then that day, you know what? It just did. And you were you were the one who was right. Everyone else was an idiot when they hit their head. Yeah. Um, we're Noah, Noah building our ark here for a couple hundred years and getting that thing done. Probably a better analogy. Okay, so uh, let me, <laughs> that one's kind of more true. Um, let me uh, hit you here with uh, with another viewing option here. We only got a couple minutes, and, and I, I'm fascinated by this this controversy about this movie Cuties on oh. uh, on Netflix. They came out with a poster. It's about sexually charged 11-year-olds. Uh, then the video came out of what the movie was, and it's horrifying to the point of I can't even watch the Twitter clips, let alone watch the movie. Um they're trying to make this point now. There's this now pushback from the left and and movie reviewers and stuff who are saying, you know, look, if you were stop complaining about it, conservatives, you would actually like the movie because the message is so good. The message is basically over sexualization of our kids is bad. Uh, and 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 this, this type of over Kardashian uh, nature of our society is a bad one. And we've just made that point in a movie. You'd actually like it. Hard to believe. Uh, yeah, it's you. Look, I'm all on board with drawing attention to that, but let's not do that. Let's not draw attention to the exploitation and hypersexualization of kids by creating a movie that does nothing but hypersexualize and, and over-exploit and over-sexualize kids. Like, it makes absolutely no sense. Like, I, I watched 10 seconds of – there was that clip going around yep. on the internet showing, you know, um, the kids dancing and everything, and it was so disturbing. 
It, it was so bad. I felt like I'm like looking around going, oh, my gosh, are the feds like coming in to arrest me for watching this two minute clip? I mean, or 20 second clip that I watched. It was horrible. Um, so I don't see how. I mean, it seems like they almost did it intentionally because a couple of weeks ago, net, we report, you know, Faithwire, we covered this because Netflix was like, oh, we're sorry for the poster. You know, that's not really indicative of what's in the film. Mm-hmm. And like, I guess they were right because what's in the film is like way worse <laughs> right. than this poster. Uh, it's horrible. Yeah. You know, it, there's there's I don't think anyone's criticizing this style of storytelling. Like I would argue that the style of storytelling, right? is the same as, let's say, Breaking Bad or American History X, yeah. where you show this really bad behavior and you and you, and you you are able to paint it in a way that shows why it was appealing to the people in the movie. And then at the end of the movie, you turned around and say, by the way, this actually was really negative for them the whole time. Like, that's, a, that's, that's not a bad way to tell a movie, but there's a cost to it. When the cost is fake violence to adults, it's totally worth telling a story that way. When the cost is real children really dancing in really provocative ways in real life in front of a camera, it's not worth it. No, it's not worth it. And like those kids were doing some other things too. Like, and I don't know if they actually watched, um, I haven't watched this part of the movie, but it describes them watching a hardcore pornographic scene on a Mm. phone, like these girls all in the bathroom. And then they're mimicking these actions because that's what they're learning it from. and they're like, Ooh, well, we're, we're right against people, kids having cell phones. All right, I got it. That's a good point. Right, yeah, I, I get it's bad. We don't have to show, <laughs> literally show them doing the things that are awful that we're all terrified that our kids, you know, of doing. I mean, it's just, it makes absolutely uh, no sense. And nobody other than Paul Krugman would probably like it. <laughs> and that's that's quite the standard. Uh, Dan Andrews, I'm sure all the updates will be up on Faithwire uh, as these uh, happen. I want to see what Netflix is going to say about that. So far, they've been doubling down. You can get the updates yeah. there. Uh, Faithwire.com. Dan is the manager editor there uh dan thanks for having a great have a great football free weekend absolutely sunday's all all uh, just sitting outside and chilling all right all free back in a second just look at us who seems to be in shape who's able to move around who's i mean this idea of you know slow joe <laughs> I anyway, I I shouldn't laugh about it because uh, anyway, Donald Trump, uh, just look at us both. Watch us and determine whether or not you think uh, um, I'm misleading anyone. Not you personally, but the public, you know. I I don't even know what to do with this anymore. Senility now. Yes, senility now. Our uh, wonderful. I swear he's gonna. One of these interviews, he's just gonna be like, and uh, I tell you, come on, man, senility now. That's what he's gonna do. All right, uh, your reviews from uh, iTunes. We appreciate them. Five stars is the appropriate number of stars. This one comes in and says, heck yes, he may be mediocre at best. Not that intelligent, but fun to listen to. Five freaking stars. Just kidding. You can tell he and possibly his team spend a lot of time researching. Love the show. The team doesn't do anything for the show. It's all me. Uh, in agreement. With- in agreement with Pelosi, need more ice cream reviews or whatever, but five freaking stars. Five freaking stars. Thank you very much. Facts, facts, facts. If you want the facts about whatever or whoever Stu is doing today, here's where you get them. It's great. Whatever. Five freaking stars. By the way, do you know, uh, thank you very much for those, by the way. Um, I'm on vacation next week, uh, but you'll have a fabulous collection of whatever the hell they put on the air. That's what the team was researching all this time. Trust me. Um, and you can get your Senility Now t-shirts. Yes, wear them for the election. Wear them to vote. <laughs> People will appreciate that. At StuDoesMerch.com. We'll see you in a week.